0: Welcome to the Art Podcast. We sit down with Canadian recording artists to explore how their background, influences, and personal journey has shaped their creative process. Each episode also features two original songs, so you get to know their music too. Today, we talked to celebrated folk songwriter, Susie Ungerleide from her home in Vancouver, BC.
1: Tressa, how are you, my friend? I'm well. It's nice
0: to see your face. It's nice to see your face, too. Where on this planet are you joining us from?
1: I'm in Vancouver, BC. How's the move out there been? Like you went there just before the pandemic, didn't you? 2019 in the summer. We drove across, we loaded up this big truck. Well, big truck. I mean, it's a Dodge Ram. And we loaded up our staff, some of our staff and then came out here and we've been here and I feel very happy to be here.
0: Yeah. Close to the ocean, close to the mountain yeah. during this time. Exactly. Um, well, we're sad that you're no longer in Ontario at the time being. Uh, hopefully you'll come back one day.
1: Yes. To, one day. To visit or stay. I will. I'll I'll come say hello. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Um, Are you ready to start this conversation? I am. Oh, amazing. So first question, what is
1: your earliest memory of music? You know, it's funny you're asking me this because someone else asked me this and I was like, I think music in my house was just there. So I don't, know if I have a particular first memory because my folks are the kind of people that will burst into song when something reminds them of a, a song. So they'll be like, I got to wash that man right out of my hair or whatever. Like they'll start singing these songs and they must've been doing that from when I was, you know, zero years old, particularly my mom who was, you know, primary caregiver probably. And she would sing patty cake and bushel in a Peck." And there's so many things that kind of rush to my mind, but I'm thinking in particular of being in my living room. They had this cool old, you know, Asian carpet, my mom playing Ella Fitzgerald really loudly in the living room. You know, stuff like that. Like, I think just flipping through my parents' records, which were very eclectic also, they had the Beatles and then they had all this jazz stuff and musicals and, you know, then some McGarrigals and, you know, so it was all those things kind of fled through my mind.
0: Uh huh. It's like, it's like, um, snapshots as opposed to a, a video or a movie at moment that you're describing.
1: Exactly. And then also what the other day I was laughing with my husband because you remember in elementary school when you would sing songs, sometimes they would be like the darkest songs. What should we do with the drunken sailor? What should we do with the drunken sailor? And it was like, let's torture him.
0: Yeah. (laughs) It was a different time when all the stories ended in murder and death for children. You're like, really? no wonder we are the way we are. As a generation, right? No wonder we wound up being this sort of cynical generation. I mean, I guess those are very old stories and very old songs. Are they the songs Mm -hmm. that you sang to your own child?
1: I don't think I sang the drunken sailor one until she was a bit older. And I would laugh and go, can you believe this song? It's all about torturing someone who's drunk. (laughs) (laughs) But I, what would I sing? You know, mm, that's a good question. When I was pregnant, I had written this song that was in part to my unborn child, but in part to my childhood self. And it's called Bullies. And I would sing that. I was recording it and mixing it when uh, I was pregnant. And so it was neat because when I had the kid and I would sing that, she would kind of stop and listen as a baby. And I'm like, oh, I think you remember this song from when you were hearing it inside.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Yeah. Again, like the snapshot, like it's very impressionistic. What about
0: the role of music within your, a little bit, like just one zoom out to your community, either your school or your extended, you know, network of humans. When we have, when we're kids, we have these extended networks that are sometimes family and sometimes not. How did that culture or that environment influence you? Do you think?
1: My uncle, who's actually a scientist, was had a guitar and he would play folk songs. I mean, the, he was of the generation of listening to Pete Seeger and following that path of everyone should be playing and singing music. And music shouldn't just be on a recording or in a show. It should be something that we just do in our lives. He just adores Pete Seeger. He's, he's turning 90, Oh, he just turned 90, and he had a guitar, and I remember him playing songs on the guitar and being captivated by that, and singing in the house was part of what we did. In fact, we, there was a rule at my table, which was, sounds weird, but it made sense where my parents said no singing at the table, which is a very odd rule. Because my sister and I would fight about what song to sing. And it was almost like, okay, we need a bit of quiet time and no conflict about which song is better to sing. So that just tells you like that we want to sing all the time.
0: What about learning to play an instrument? How did that happen for you?
1: Oh, that was, that was pretty funny because when I was about five, my sister had a friend who had a big grand piano in her house and I would go over while we were picking her up or something. And and I would start playing it in this, again, impressionistic way, you know, a storm is coming or, you know, I start to get really into this, all this moody sounds of the keyboard. And, and so my parents noticed I, I was just captivated by this instrument. And so they bought a piano for me, which was beautiful. Oak piano sounded really great. And I was just like, wow, this is incredible. I have this magical thing in our living room now. And my dad, I remember clearly, he sat me down. He goes, now you have to take lessons. And I burst into tears like, no, please don't make me take lessons. I'm just going to play storm clouds on this piano for the rest of my days, which, you know, of course, from an grown-up point of view, makes perfect sense. Learn how to play the instrument that is sitting in your living room. But for me, it was like, I don't want to do that. I just want to play with this thing. And so I did. I actually took some lessons and had a great teacher, but she moved away and then went through a series of teachers. And I was a terrible student, didn't want to practice. Just I had a really good ear so I could fake it to a certain degree. I know you as a piano player must think this is hilarious or just be like, oh, one of you. I don't know. I could hear something and memorize it and kind of figure out where my hands were, but I wasn't really reading the music. I was sort of reading it, but not really. And so every teacher I had was probably like, oh, brother, this kid again, like trying to fake her way through this thing.
0: I made my way to grade five Royal Conservatory. Oh, you're so good.
1: No, by ear. I also
0: faked reading. I hated reading. But my parents made me practice every day. And so I would get my teacher to play, and I didn't like my teacher at all. I would get her to play the tune and play it again, play the passage that I was flubbing. And then I would just learn it section by section, these classical. Wow. I made it a really long way until the sight reading part of the exam got hard enough that my teacher was like, Can you do this with two hands? And I, I couldn't do it. I had to like, be held back a year. It was very
1: embarrassing. That is so embarrassing. And I just, you know, that's how did that affect you performance wise in the future? Okay.
0: This podcast is about you, but here's what I'll tell you. I want to know. I want to know. I'll tell you that I went all the way to grade eight. I, I got my grade eight Royal Conservatory piano and theory. It was the lowest mark I received in my entire high school transcript. And I quit playing piano oh, wow. entirely. The classical teaching that I was exposed to was not the right fit for this Irish musician soul that I have. Um, and then it was the accordion that brought me back. That is so cool. Because you only play one hand and you're just listening and playing along with people. And I was like, oh, okay, I'm back. And now, and then I was like, I'm back on the piano. I'm
1: back on all the things. I'm back. I'm so thankful for that because again, I also, you know, in our house, one of the things that was missing in terms of the record collection, was classical music. I really didn't understand it. I didn't know It had made no sense to me. There was no emotional connection to it. My parents didn't sing classical songs to me or they didn't listen to that. So I agree that if I had learned how to play Boogie Woogie or something, or just songs like, oh, you like this song? Let's learn how to play it. Then I probably would have had a very different relationship to lessons and learning. Because really, I approached it from a songwriter's point of view. Like, I just want to play with this and make sense sounds and create something. And I, I'm in awe of people who can go through the system and come out doing very well and it matches what they want to do. But for me, it wasn't really the right thing. And what was funny is I quit. And then my mother, my dad goes, well, if you're so into it, why don't you do it? My mom took lessons. And then she was like, yeah, practicing is a drag and she quit too. Right. And then you were free. You were liberated
0: from the disappointment because she was like, oh yeah, no, this really does stink. Forget it. Yeah. Um, What about the guitar? How'd you get into the guitar? Like when in the arc of your songwriter self did that because Inst- that's your instrument, right?
1: Yeah, I I would say my instrument is my voice, really. Because I always just wanted to be a singer, really. Well, I probably wanted to be a piano player too, but singing was the easiest, most natural thing to do. And my sister would sing. Sister and I would sing and pretend we're Donnie and Marie. That's another funny memory. You know, like making reel-to-reel recordings of ourselves, pretending we're Donnie and Marie. And of course I was Marie. Guitar. I think in my high school years, I got really shy about being a singer in elementary school. I was like, I'm a singer. I'm going to be a rock star, blah, blah, blah. And then grade eight hits. And I'm going to school with all these huge people. And I'm like, oh, I can't tell anyone that I want to do this. And I was trying to be cool. And so I just pretended that didn't ever happen. And then when I got to university, I went to McGill for a couple of years. I was sort of singing in the hall or in my room or whatever, and people started to hear it. And they were like, hey, you're good. You should learn guitar too. And then you could play along with yourself. And my friend gave me a guitar and I started taking lessons from a jazz female jazz guitarist, which was really cool. And I was like, what do musicians think? I just want to sit next to one and, and figure out what how they think. They're like this cool, interesting human being that must have a different outlook on everything. And so that's what I did. I was like kind of doing the guitar, but really I wanted to sing. And it was like a gateway into becoming a singer. I still don't think I'm a great guitarist, but I get by with what I need to do. <laughs>
0: Right. Well, it's not your focus. Your focus is a song, right? Like you've said that a couple of times in this conversation.
1: Yeah. Very interesting. It's
0: interesting that you looked at musicians as a group. I did. That thought in a way that you wanted to know more about. You didn't really see yourself in that way. And I wonder what your self now, at this point in your life, having spent really a good part of your adult life surrounded by musicians. I think you married a musician. What would you tell that 20-year-old or 21-year-old self?
1: Ah, Yeah, it's a good question. I still think that musicians hear things. Some people argue with me. They say, well, you, aren't you a musician? And I'm like, well, I am in a way, but I see myself more as a songwriter. And that's kind of a different thing. You can be both. But when I think about a musician, I, I kind of think they have this math going on in their minds too. Like they have this incredible theory happening in their brains and they understand scales and they understand how notes fit together. And And then some musicians I realize don't listen to lyrics at all. I know that they're hearing different things when they hear something. The first thing they might hear is rhythm or note value or, you know, what scale it's in or whatever it is. And for me, it's all about the singer. We used to be anyway. Now I hear much more. That's been a a real education, like hanging around with people who play different instruments and suddenly realizing like, you know, that's how all those instruments fit together. Because when I was a kid, all I would hear was a voice and then the music in the background. And I'd be like, I don't even know what the point is of a bass. You know, like, what does that do? And then hanging around musicians has made me go, I get it now. I still, I don't know exactly what it's doing, but I also, but I do know why it's there and what it does to make the music shine and kind of come alive. It's interesting. It feels like what
0: you're talking about is like a form of literacy or, or fluency with the written and the written language of it, the grammar of it you're such an innate speaker of it Mm. that it's interesting to hear you talk about it in that way and do you think that that sense of being a songwriter and being in a way like not in that room in a different space whether that's another room in the house of song or whether
1: that's like on the front lawn peering in has that informed what you do? Probably. I think that um, maybe the longing of wanting to be something or observing, that's really where I am when I'm writing is I'm longing or I'm observing and I want to be in there, but I also love watching it and capturing thoughts or other, you know, what I'm seeing. stories that I'm seeing or observing or my own stories. And then sometimes literally talking about what happened or, or watching it as a movie. Like this memory is in my head, but I'm watching it as if it's a movie and then I'm going to write it into a song or somebody told me something about what they lived through. And I'm like, ah, I could just picture all that stuff. Like, you know, what did it taste like? What did it look like? What are the, what did it smell like? I'm going to try to write that down as if I know exactly what it was like. And then I'm in there and I'm living it myself. Maybe curiosity is, is that's the biggest key to the songs I write is that I'm curious. Sometimes when my husband says, Oh, I did this thing or whatever, or I saw this person, I'm like, tell me exactly. What you said. Tell me exactly what they said. And how did this unfold and lead to the next part of the conversation? And he kind of is looking at me like, huh? Like, I just told you, like, I, I paraphrased it all. And I'm like, no, I want to know what triggered this next thing that happened in your meeting. Like, somehow, sequence is a really important thing in my mind. I guess that's how narratives unfold. Like, I want to know how the narrative unfolded.
0: Oh, uh, so interesting. This notion of watching, we're, we're, we've, by the way, we've seamlessly segued into your artistic practice and your, and your influence, your vision. So good job. Um, it's interesting. Like, I really love what you're saying about, or or knowing this about you, that this observational sort of, step back and look in quality of how you find the anchor in the songwriting because I sense that of your songs also like I think of the songs of yours that I know and there's one particular song that my friend I, I moved to this commune cool in West Virginia and my pal there was like your biggest fan and she there was this song and I don't remember how it goes but I remember that it was about being on a bus and seeking longing Looking out the window, like the impression. We're back, it's right back in impressions. We're right back here in these. Like I have these pictures in my mind. So it's interesting to think about you identifying these pictures or these movies or these glimpses as the fertile fields that you find your inspiration from. Mm-hmm. Tell me about the first era of performing your own songs. Oh, wow. Now, I know you were at university, you were singing in the hallway, you got the guitar, but like, how did that translate to you
1: and the show? Me and the show. Oh, my God. I mean, I could tell you about the first show. Yes, that's the one I want to hear about. Oh, my God. From the time I was 11, I was like, I'm going to be Pat Benatar. I'm going to be Mick Jagger. You know, then it was like many years of watching other people be on the stage and being like, I wish I could do that. So I went to university. I went to McGill for a couple of years. Then I took a year off. I was kind of, you know, playing guitar and singing covers and whatever, but not in front of anyone really. Then I went to Concordia and the college I went to was like, we have this coffee house that we do every year, which is basically a talent show, but it's a chance for people to be goofy and do skits or show off whatever thing they want to show off. And I was like, this is my big chance. I'm going to... Recruit my friend who had always said, you know, we sang Rolling Stone song together. And I'm gonna root re- again his roommate who played guitar. And I'm gonna go on stage and I'm gonna put on a fake accent. And I'm gonna be Susie Cowpie. And I'm gonna sing Dead Flowers in Care of the Blues by Patsy Klein. And then I'm gonna I wrote a very silly song called The Smoke Meat Blues about Schwartz's jet deli and the sh- Smoked meat sandwiches there Because we were in Montreal Basically full of double entendres Like she loves it fat and greasy And like woman loves her smoke meat She loves it all night long Kind of thing And then so I got on stage And I was I just started riffing about How I was just passing through And I was on my way Somehow I understood that people went on tour In Thunder Bay I don't know how I even knew this But I'm like I'm just on my way to Thunder Bay And blah 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 (laughs) But then I sang these songs in front of like probably 50 people and I was so nervous and so excited. And when I finished, it felt like, like, you know, that everybody mobbed me and they were like, Oh my God. (laughs) I mean, it probably was like five people, but they did come up to me and go, that was amazing. And I was like, Oh my God, I did it. I actually show people that I want to sing and I can sing and then, you know, and that they think I'm, legit and that they're excited by it. And, and they said like, Oh, you must have been doing this for a long time. I'm like, no, this is basically the first show. So that was, that was it. I mean, I didn't, it wasn't like overnight, I'm going to go on stage and, but it was this breakthrough moment of, I'm going to show everyone, this is something in me, even though I'm going to make it kind of goofy and like, well, (laughs) even though you're going to actually adopt an Alter ego. Totally. Like, what
0: happened to Susie Calpine? Like, is she still alive? Does she still play shows? Like, how did she become Oh Susanna? Or was that the next step on your journey? What happened next?
1: There's a lot of things that happened, but I mean, to get to the next stage where I was writing my own songs and performing my own songs, because those were all, I mean, that smoke meat song was like the silly song, right? And then I started to think, okay, I'm going to write songs for real. And I finished school, I got reconnected with a childhood friend who was also into music and wanted to play music and make a band and everything. But it was too fraught with lots of torturous, romantic, semi, you know, weird stuff going on. So that sort of fell apart. And um, I moved back, back to Vancouver after finishing school and I had these dreams of like, I want to make music. I want to do this. But it still felt like I don't know how to do it. I, I feel too shy. And I went down to the railway club and saw people who played with Ray Kondo, which you know some of you might not even know who that is, but he was like a Roots music symbol icon in Vancouver. And this band that would go on stage on the, at the railway every Saturday afternoon, and you could sign up to do an open mic, you know, open mic kind of thing, but you had to sing old timey music. So I finally had the courage to go up to the bass player and be like, can anyone just go up there? And he's like, yeah, but you can't sing anything new. Like don't sing any whatever, you know, (laughs) George Strait or whatever. Don't come up here and sing Mustang Sally or whatever. (laughs) Like just... You got to sing something old. And I was like, perfect. Because I had been... Susie Capoy became this persona that I had on radio too. Because I was doing a radio show at Concordia. And I played all this bluegrass and old... And I was educating myself. Because I didn't know anything about all those you know, the minutiae of, and the history of that music. I made the, you know, I had this show and then I learned as I was doing the show and I would comb the record shops and go to the library and take live records out of the library. Cause you couldn't, you know, it's the nineties, you can't have the internet and it's, you know, even CDs were rare of this stuff. So eventually I went on stage with these guys and sang Knoxville girl and St. James infirmary or something. And Those are the songs that I was trying to write. So I started to write and try to go into this dark, again, murder songs or dark, you know, songs that talked about tragedy and disease or whatever. And then I made a little cassette and the cassette, I had to call myself something And so my friend, I had this card, my friend had made me of full of lyrics, played upon my name, like Black Eyed Susie, She's Half Crazy, Suzanne Takes You Down, and made this little poem, and it had Oh, Suzanne on there. And so my friend was like, just use that as your name. So I started to use that and put out this cassette. And really, I had barely played any shows, but I did somehow the industry caught wind of this cassette.
0: Right, it was the right time for that sound at that time. And Susie Cowpye was ready to relinquish the stage to someone closer to your actual name, but still not still observing something really like it's so, that's so fascinating. I would never have intuited this about your career. I apologize for knowing not enough about it, but that's okay. um, I'm looking at these questions. We've already answered so many of them. So, okay. So you're, so you released this cassette, you start to tour, people know you, you sell records you're it's a thing you have this career. Are you inside now the house or are you still standing outside?
1: Yeah, I think <clears throat> when I moved to Toronto, which was well, I released the cassette ninety six ish maybe ninety five and then people in Toronto heard it, and they said you should come here and play a gig, and I did that. I went out there met all these people in Toronto. And that was a really huge feeling of getting let inside. Because when I was in Vancouver, I wasn't really in the music scene. I was, And the music scene here was very disparate because there's no center, really. There was no Queen Street here. Um, there was a railway club and, and then a few other clubs. But it didn't, I don't know, I didn't feel like I was in... The heart of anything. So when I went to Toronto, it was like this thing where people understood what I was talking about. They knew the references. They understood, and it was a living tradition. Whereas here, it felt a little bit more like, I love all these dead people. You know, dead people are my inspiration, and I and I'm trying to resurrect this thing that might be a relic from the past. And when I went to Toronto, it was like, no, no, this is really living and breathing. And it's a current tradition. So come here. It's every Wednesday at the silver dollar forever. Right. Right. So it's like, come to town, you know, I go to town to play some gigs and then I make the decision to move to Toronto because it just felt like this is a real living, breathing thing that's happening here. And I think it was then when I moved to Toronto, even then, you know, I wasn't I didn't know people well, so I still felt a little bit outside, but I was in a community and, you know, that was kind of felt like the inside. However, I still had this knowledge. I'm not from Toronto. I'm not from Ontario. I'm from the West. I'm from a different place. And that longing, I mean, it's interesting because I, Fred Eagle Smith was kind of a mentor to me in those days. And he would be like, Susie, it's a good thing you're from the West and that you are from the outside because and that you're not living at home. He had this theory. It's great you're not living at home because then you will always be longing for this mysterious home and it will inform your songwriting.
0: Fascinating because the music that you chose to learn about, like bluegrass music, there is so much longing in that genre. So much longing for people who have died early for, for a time gone by, for the, the homestead. Or heaven. yes. Longing to belong to something, longing for something you can't have. So that's very fascinating to me. Uh, and you also just answered the question, uh, what's a piece of career advice that you received that you've never forgotten because you just told me and I didn't have to ask you. (laughs) Um, and you're talking about community. So I want to talk a little bit about a different community. That's the same, but the community uh, that includes not just the players, but the listeners. So I'm thinking about the festival that you've played six times in a row. And you there's people there that you've seen every time. And you've had these like surprising connections with non-musicians that the larger network, the zoom out to the, the network. In particular, when I'm talking about festivals or going to smaller towns, I want to talk about your relationship with the people who listen to your music and who come to the shows and who shore up Mm-mm. this whole thing that we do that some folks would have you call an industry, but on some level is also truly it's a community.
1: What, when I say that, what is your reaction? I have this warm feeling in my tummy, <laughs> which is so funny because when I first started, I was terrified of the audience. And I still get nervous and I still kind of go a little bit wiggy after I've played a show. I get all hyper and like, oh my God, what have I just done? Ah!" And It's like amazing, but I'm kind of like discombobulated. And even though it's funny, because I'm sure that on stage that isn't really apparent. It's like I put all this energy into crafting a show and then afterwards I'm like, It takes me a long time to kind of calm down and and not be in this weird headspace where I can't really, I'm focusing, but I'm not really, I'm like my head's spinning. But so as time went on, I stopped feeling like the audience was this scary thing. I started to feel like I should be viewing the audience as this potential friend potential friends, in the audience. And sometimes they were friends in the audience. These are might be the people that I end up knowing and, and having a relationship in the future. Like It started to really shift in, I don't know when, but um, maybe when I started to get more comfortable on stage, I remember playing a show with my friend, Vicky Fraser at the Rivoli. And it was kind of this goofy show where we did this you know, I was trying to be serious all the time, I think in a way like, or just cool, not necessarily serious, just cool on stage. And then Vicky and I did the show where we were being super goofy, singing a cover and just, we were friends. So we we're just laughing and stuff. And someone also from the industry said, Oh my God, you were so relaxed and so funny and goofy on stage. Like that's what you should be doing more of like, just relax and stop forget about being cool and giving off this impression, just be silly or, you know, be relaxed. And I was like, Oh yeah, that's right. Cause I mean, I'm not necessarily a relaxed performer. I might look like that, but it's just, you know, I get nervous. I, um, I get excited. I, you know, I'm still kind of that kid, like, oh my God, I really want to be on stage. And then when I'm on there, I'm like, what do I do? Ah, I'm going to do it. Anyway, so I do. it's shifted from being, oh my God, those people are going to hurt me because they might throw tomatoes at me.
0: Right, adversarial.
1: To, oh, hi, everyone. Like I'm kind of shy, but you're looking at me now and maybe I'll talk to you and you'll see this thing that has come out of me. So, so take me into that
0: moment. Who in the audience do you most want to make a connection with who who is it out there that you really want your songs to be speaking to or inspiring? Oh,
1: that's a really hard answer a hard hard thing to answer um I don't know if I'm thinking that way like um is there a particular person in mind? What I love is when I play a show and then someone who I don't expect to be moved or to absorb what I'm doing is, for example, say like little kid who loves uh, the darkest song I've ever written. You know, some little kid's like, I love that song and I want to hear it over and over again. Or somebody who, you know, I opened, <laughs> did some really weird shows at the beginning where I opened for a guy named Zach Wild, who used to play with Ozzy Osbourne and his show was like acoustic version of, you know, heavy metal ballads or whatever. And I opened for him And I still have people go, I saw you open for Zach Wild, I was a heavy metal guy. And now I love what you do. Stuff like that. Like, that really gives me this rush of like, oh my god, people are more complicated than we give them credit for. That's my answer. Well, I love that answer.
0: It, it's not a direct answer. I, I guess I was trying to disingenuously guide you towards the next <laughs> question. But I love that answer because people are more complicated than we give them credit for. Our audiences are more complicated and we're more in relation with them. That's a very interesting thing to talk about and think about. How do you feel about like, have you ever played a show where then you do a talk back or like a, a like an
1: an engagement event? How What are those like for you? I get, again, I get nervous, but I do love it. It's a thrill. Like, I think for me, the things that are scary are things that I should move towards. And I had to really fight against the feeling of running away from them. know that's what the stage was. I really wanted to be there, but it was scaring the heck out of me. So I was like, I need to ignore the feeling of running from this or avoiding it. So I'm going to go towards it instead of running away. So with these talks, I just, I love them. I mean, as you can tell, I love talking. So having a great conversation for me is, it just fills me up. So That interspersed with long stretches of silence that are meditative. I love, that's the perfect life for me. Like having incredible conversations and then having the silence where you're staring at a beautiful scene or something.
0: Okay, wait, you're describing touring life. Yes! You have this conversation with the audience and your fellow musicians, and then you get in a van and drive to Thunder Bay and you're looking out the window. Exactly, that's so true. Uh, Is there a class? That you or a
1: community type
0: of event or a workshop that you teach?
1: I do. Ha- I started to have that because a few years ago, Calgary Folk Fest got me to do this songwriting boot camp. And I really thought a lot about it. What am I going to do? How am I going to approach this? So I developed this kind of curriculum or like a three day thing and have different writing exercises. And I thought it was mostly important to get people to write because that's my biggest struggle. I think is sometimes just sitting down and actually doing the creative work. You know, I could talk all day about me and whatever, but they'll never get any writing done. Like they'll just listen to me and go, Oh, okay. I thought that's not useful. What's useful to people who actually want to make songs is to get some ideas down and get some seeds planted and like getting people in touch with their stories. We're back to
0: the story. And he said, What, when, and why did he play that? Interesting. Have you done it since then?
1: I did the Calgary one. I did one in Kitchener Waterloo at the public library there. I did one in Toronto just myself. I spun, you know, I rented a church room and did it there and I went to wells you see that was really fun and so you'
0: got a passion for this you like
1: this I do like it I was terrified again I was really scared to do it but afterwards it felt so meaningful who who comes to these who has come to these oh it's interesting so I actually did one in England as well and I guess they applied but they were also selected as emerging artists so they all already had experience. Some of them were more on the musician side, not the writing side. And then the Calgary folks, it was people who wanted to write songs, but they didn't want to make a career of it. So they were just like, I'm doing this as a passion, as a way to express myself. So there was a real love of the art form itself. So that was wonderful.
0: That's real community work. Like it's not, it's back to that industry community. Like they're the same thing, but they're also not the same thing. And you're describing this sense of like removing the pressure from the song being a product and just get really immersing into the process of it and the unlocking
1: of it. I think we're at fun questions to end with. Okay, let's do it. Even though I could talk all day with you because you're so
0: funny and smart. Well, we're having a great time. I'm realizing that you and I are quite alike, actually. Like our stories are kind of alike. There's ways we're not. But um, do you have a talent completely outside of music or a skill set? Something that would be of real interest, but not widely known?
1: When I was at the end of high school, I really didn't know if I was going to be in science or arts. I had a kind of math brain and a science brain as well. At first, I was really wanting to explore biology and chemistry and physics. That was something I was really interested in. Uh, Have you had Joe jobs in your life? I've had some really typical Joe jobs like Starbucks coffee and Um, but I did work at a pool hall. There was this pool hall craze here in the nineties in Vancouver, like suddenly pool going to play pool was the thing. (laughs) And uh, this guy opened this Woodstock cafe. And so it was like this billiard hall. And part of my thing was to rent out the balls and then clean the tables and make hamburgers and then make drinks and stuff for people. So What was really funny about that is that I ended up meeting this woman, Denise, and she ended up working in the music industry. We both do this job. We quit. She goes off, does her thing. I go off. I start performing and I go to Toronto to play some of my first gigs there. I'm getting ready to go on stage and Denise is there and she goes, Susie. And I said, Denise, she's like, oh my God, you're the person I'm here to see. And check out because she worked for a na- live nation or something like that. <laughs> she was an agent. And I was like, holy crap, this is so funny. So again, like all these weird circles. Another job I had was with Melissa Ofterma, who's a bass player now. She and I were working in a deli in Montreal together. And the jobs themselves were typical, but just who you meet, you never know what's gonna happen.
0: You never know who you're gonna meet, and you never know what where that's going to lead to this has really been a, a a really great conversation I've really enjoyed speaking with you today and please hug your family for me your child and your husband tell them I miss them please come visit Ontario when this Panettone is finally over
1: thank you Tressa
2: not death, you sing under your breath, as you slip past the back door and into the night. The smell of smashed pumpkins still fresh in the air, and all the fall colors like streaks in your She laughs at that silly old mask that you've worn all winter long It's the promise of spring and the new blush of green You're supposed to sing a new kind of song The smell of pink blossoms all fresh in the air The light morning raindrops that shine in your hair Though you try to smile, it's loaded with guile So you end up feeling all wrong taught in your ears, But you'd rather go deep into darkness and weep Than to skate on the surface and walk while asleep The smell of smashed pumpkin all fresh in the air And all the fall colors like streaks in your hair There's hope in your heart as you walk through the dark, through the leaves and the mud and decay. Through the leaves and the mud and decay.
0: Thanks for listening to the ARC podcast. If you'd like to know more about today's guest, please take a look at our show notes. Our producer and engineer is Tim Frazier of Murdoch Entertainment our host is Tressa Levasseur. Thanks to the Canada Council for the Arts for making this podcast possible and thanks to you for tuning
2: in. Sweet little sparrow soars on the warmth of the breeze That suddenly dives and hides in the green of the leaves I can't catch you You just leave me to my dreaming